many scoff at Christians and the notion that we are people who profess to be people of faith. And while the world will scoff at Christian faith, I would hazard to say that most people demonstrate in life some form of faith. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they take the subway or the bus or the streetcar, and they trust that they will get to where they're going. They make plans for their vacation in the summer, even though they are not sure that they will ever see the period of time. We are people of faith. We go to our pharmacies and we get medication, most of which we have no clue what comprises the medication that we and we take them. At least most of us do, if we are obedient to our doctors. And we do so all of these things with trust, faith. And so while man demonstrates faith in the myriad circumstances of life, it seems that we are, however, reluctant to have faith and to trust in God. And it is this theme, this theme of trusting in God, that I want to reflect upon in your hearing. It is a theme that I want to develop from the Gospel of Mark. Mark, it is believed by the scholars, was the first, epistle, the first gospel that was written. It was written somewhere in the 60s AD, perhaps 65 or 66, somewhere there. And it is, its author was John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas and a close associate of Peter the Apostle. In other words, this, this gospel was written with the testimony of an eyewitness that is Peter. Peter provided the information that we have here in the book of Mark. It was written to a largely Gentile audience, perhaps congregations in Rome. And it focuses on the humanity of Jesus. That indeed, the central message of Mark relates to Christ in his humanity. And, and Mark centers more than anything else upon the death of Jesus Christ. Upon the passion and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that others have said that whatever precedes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is merely a footnote to the cross. There are a number of themes apart from the passion and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that Mark centers upon. He deals with the theme of the kingdom of God. He deals with the theme of discipleship. But there is also this theme of faith that runs like a silk thread throughout this gospel, this theme of faith. I want us to look at this, this theme and consider it under the rubrics of the prerequisite of faith, the possibilities of faith, and finally, the preciousness of faith. Let's look at the prerequisite of faith here in chapter 1. The prologue of Mark, that is Mark chapter 1, 1 to 15, 
contains this theme of faith. Right there at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he gives no indication about the Lord's birth, but rather he begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism and the commission and the temptation of Jesus Christ by Satan. And then to the pertinent passage in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, we read these words. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the first instance of the term believe or faith in the gospel of Mark. It will reoccur some 11 times, that is, Pistis and pistio, the verb, will reoccur 11 times in this gospel. But he says, repent and believe the gospel. This verb, pistio, to believe, simply means to trust. It means to rely upon, to depend upon someone or something. It is that which relies upon the trustworthiness of someone or something. Repent and believe in the gospel. But it is of note here that the call to believe demands an object. Very often when pistil, that is to believe, is used, it is used with the word that. We are to believe that. And that in, in, invites the thought that the Lord expects people to believe a body of truth. As particular content, faith demands an object. And so there is always believe that. In this case here, in verse 15, the Lord Jesus says that they are to repent and believe in the gospel. And there is a, a difference, there is a nuance between, between believing that, meaning believing a body of truth, and believing in. Because believing in demands that we are to rely upon, that one entrusts himself to that which he accepts as true. Here, the object of belief is the gospel. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the, the time planned by God, the time that God has set aside for the revelation of his salvation is now fulfilled. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning has arrived. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the object of their faith. But it needs to be said that believing in the gospel is essentially to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark uses the term gospel three times in the prologue, here in verses 1 to 15. And it is in this context that we are to understand what he means by gospel. Believe in the gospel, euangelion. Now, th this word euangelion was a common word in the first century. It just simply meant good news. And very often, euangelion, good news, the gospel, was used in, the con in a political context. So, for example, when a person ascends and became the emperor in Rome, 
that was seen as Evangelion gospel or good news. There is now a new emperor, and so there would be good news. That was an ordinary term for good news. But when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, he's talking of believing in a greater news than merely the ascension of one to become emperor. He's talking about believing in himself. How do I know that? Because the very first line of Mark's gospel, it says in verse 1 of Mark, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, the reason we call the other works by Matthew and Luke and John gospels is because Mark says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you will find in many of your Bibles, you will find the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John. It is because of what Mark says here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Jesus comes along and he says to those in Galilee, repent and believe the gospel. But the gospel demands an object, and the object is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. And it is to believe the gospel means one must believe then in the person of Christ. One must believe in Jesus, the, the physical Jesus who came into this world as a real person. His name means Savior. But one must believe in him not merely as Savior. One must believe in him as a son of God. That he is fully God. That he, in his nature, he bears the same, the same nature as God the Father himself. You see, to believe the gospel is to believe in the person of Christ and to believe not only in his humanity, but in his divinity, he's the son of God. In verse 11 of this same chapter, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But to believe in the gospel is to believe in the person of Christ. It is also to believe in the saving reign of Christ because in verse 14, we read Jesus comes to Galilee preaching the gospel. Here's a second reference to gospel. Preaching the gospel. And he says it is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God. And when we talk of the kingdom of God, as I have been uh, apt to tell you, the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. The spiritual reign that God exercises over the hearts of his people. But even in believing in the, the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God, it is still a call to believe in Christ. Because it is Jesus Christ who represents the kingdom, the spiritual reign of God. It is, it is in Christ that the reign of God, the spiritual reign and rule of God over his people is realized. And that is why some theologians call Christ the autobasilia, that he himself is a kingdom. Because even here in our text, you begin to see something of Christ establishing God's reign when he comes in verse 12 and he's tempted and he defeats Satan. This is a harbinger. This is proleptic. This is anticipatory of the victory. He's going to win at the cross and he's going to rule over the hearts and lives of God's people. Repent and believe the gospel is to believe in the person of Christ. It is to believe in his saving rule. It is essentially to believe in him as savior. But to believe the gospel, as we have it in verse 15, 
repent and believe the gospel. It is to believe in not only Christ and his saving rule, but to believe in his death and resurrection. It is of great interest that in chapter 14 of Mark, Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper. I don't think he was still a leper when Jesus went to visit him. He had been a leper in the past, but now he's now known as Simon the leper. And Jesus is there, and this woman comes, and she brings a very expensive perfume, and she breaks the box open, and she pours it on Jesus' head. Those who were there with the Lord, some of them were quite put out by this, what they consider to be a waste of something that could have been sold, and the money could have been given to the poor. Jesus says, the poor you always have with me. The poor you always have with you, but you do not have, always have me with you. And then he says something very interesting. He says that what this woman has done is that she has prepared his body for burial. And then he goes on to say that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done to him will be remembered as an act of memorial to this woman. That is, wherever the gospel is preached, this act of this woman would also be mentioned. Well, what did she do? She prepared him for death. And what it means, therefore, is that the gospel, because it involves death, those who believe in Jesus Christ and believe the gospel must not only believe in him as a son of God and believe in him as the one who comes with God's saving reign, one must believe in his cross. That the true understanding of the gospel entails a belief in Christ who lived and died for us and who also rose again because this, this cross, crucifixion, resurrection, nexus cannot be separated. Our Lord Jesus says, believe in the gospel. They must believe in him who is a saving reign of God and in him who saves by his death. It is essential to recognize that if one is to enter the kingdom of God, as you have it in verse 15, that individual must repent. You know, faith and repentance might be, might be distinguished but never separated. Faith is the basis of repentance. That those who believe must also turn, and repentance is turning one's back on one's sinful lifestyle. It's giving up self-rule to be ruled by God and by his word and by his spirit. It is to be sorry for one's sin. It is to change. It is to leave them behind. And it is to turn in faith and to rely upon God. No one becomes a member of God's kingdom unless there is a turning from sin and a turning to God in faith. And so Christ begins his ministry by saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news that is to be found in Jesus Christ himself. No one can enter God's kingdom. No one can become a believer. No one can have salvation apart from a wholehearted trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly in his death and resurrection from the dead. You will see that faith is a prerequisite. Jesus preaches this at the beginning of this book. It is stated up front. And if anyone else will follow the Lord Jesus Christ in discipleship, they must begin here by believing in Jesus.
It is important to note that when Jesus healed the woman with the hemorrhaging of blood, he says something very interesting to her. He says to her, your faith has saved you. You remember the story of the woman who comes and holds onto Jesus' garment and she's healed just by touching the hem of his garment. Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. And, and the language he uses there is significant because he does not use therapia. Your faith has healed you. He says your faith has saved you. Zodzo. It is the word that is used for salvation. See, this woman did not only receive healing from her disease physically, she also received salvation, spiritual salvation, because of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, faith is the basis. It is therefore, according to Mark, we see the prerequisite of faith, that is the prerequisite of faith for salvation. In, the, in, the, in fact, in Mark 16, verse 16, we hear these words, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes and reflects that faith in the Lord in his baptism will be saved. It is not baptism which saves him, but it is faith in the Lord. You know that because in the last part of the verse it says, but he who does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say he who does not uh, submit to baptism will be condemned, but he who does not believe. And so uh, he who believes will be saved. And baptism is merely the outward sign of his inward faith and trust in God. We see then the prerequisite of faith, the prerequisite of faith for salvation. But Mark, if he discloses the prerequisite of faith, he emphasizes the possibilities of faith. And this time I want you to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. There we have an, a particularly pregnant incident where Jesus returns from the Mount of Transfiguration. There he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Something of his inward glory shines out and he blazes with light before his three closest disciples. This is a mountain, this is a mountain to savor, an experience to cherish. Jesus is transfigured into luminosity, into brilliant light. His clothes become so white, whiter than any detergent can ever make white. And he comes down from this mountaintop experience. And when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he sees his disciples embroiled in controversy with, some, with the crowd. When Jesus inquires as to the nature of the dispute, a man comes forward and he says to Jesus that he has a demon-possessed son. This boy, from his childhood, has been influenced, possessed by a demon. And he tells the Lord Jesus that the demon affects his son in adverse ways. First of all, this is a demon that he tells the Lord that causes his son to foam at the mouth, to gnash his teeth, and even to go rigid. This demon, he says, throws this boy into the fire and into the water in order to destroy him. And he came to the disciples and asked them to exercise the demon, to remove the demon from the little boy, but the disciples could not do so. And in a moment, in a moment of great angst, in a moment he reaches out to Jesus and he says these words to the Lord, 
If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That is in verse 22, Mark 9, 22. Jesus responds to this man and he says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Verses 23 to 24. Right here, Jesus enunciates a principle that you and I ought never to forget. The principle that God exercises limitless power in response to human faith. I want to repeat that. God exercises his limitless power in response to human faith. The man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus takes this man's words and he uses them in response to him. He says, if you can do anything, if you can, if you can, meaning, meaning you're doubting my ability to work, but all things are possible to him who believes. Here we see not merely the, 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 the prerequisite of faith, but now we see the possibilities of faith. All things are possible to him who believes. These are shockingly absolute terms. That the hearer must realize that the impossible becomes possible by means of faith. All things are possible to him who believes. And all things are possible to him who believes, not because of the greatness of his faith, but because of the greatness of the one in whom he believes. All things are possible to him who believes. You see the possibility of faith. Faith opens the one who believes to great possibilities. It brings the impossible within view. The reason is because there is nothing too difficult for God to do. You see this, for instance, when Jesus speaks about the rich and those who trust in money who cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, when the disciples ask the question, then who can enter, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with men it is impossible. In chapter 10 of, Matthew, of Mark, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Our Lord says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. We see the possibility of faith. This man cried out to the Lord, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus goes ahead and casts out the demon and restores the boy. That which was impossible for man becomes possible through faith in Jesus Christ. We see the possibilities of faith to do that which is impossible. There is a second incident where you see a second picture of the unlimited possibilities of faith that is in the mountain-moving statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this time, if you flip forward to chapter 11 of Mark and verses 22 to 24, in Mark 11, 22 to 24, we see again the, another picture of the possibilities of faith. 
So we read in Mark 11, 22, so Jesus answered and said to them, that is to his disciples, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And strikingly, he continues, Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you have received them, and you will have them. Now, this, these verses occur in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem from Bethany. The cross is looming before him. In a few days, he will be crucified. And our Lord Jesus comes in from Bethany. He sees a tree, a fig tree with leaves. And when he draws near, there are no figs on the tree and Jesus curses the tree. And I know people, environmentalists, have a problem with that. Jesus kills a tree. But you know, I think that he has a right to kill what belongs to his. I think that if the tree belongs to him, he has a right to do what he wants to do without, without explanation or apology to any one of us. So he, say, he curses the tree. This is what we call an acted parable. Because the tree represents the nation of Israel. They are the ones from whom God is seeking fruit. And they bear no fruit. And God is now going to judge them. There is also within this story this notion of replacement theology because Jesus Christ will now come as a second Israel to obey and to produce fruit where Israel fails. The story goes on here in Mark 9. Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that the temple has become a foreign exchange. People are buying and selling and changing money and he drives them out. Again, you see the replacement theology because Jesus Christ now will, will be seen as the replacement of the temple. That this, the physical temple in Jerusalem will no more be the locus of God, but the, the temple will be associated with Christ himself. He now is the temple, the very locus of God. That if one were to, to find God's presence, one does not need to go up to the temple in Jerusalem, one needs to come to Jesus Christ. So Jesus drives these people out of the temple. The next day, the disciples return to Jerusalem. And Peter sees something that is shocking. He sees the fig tree that Christ cursed the previous day withered. And he says, withered from the root upwards. That's amazing. And so he points our Lord in astonishment to this fig tree. And it is in this context then that Jesus says to him, have faith in God. You see, Mark then views faith not only as an initial response to Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, but faith is a continuing, ongoing requirement of the believing community. And that is why you have the, the, the imperative or the present imperative. Have faith in God, meaning go on having faith in God. It is after this then... He calls them to have faith in God that he directs them to the unlimited possibilities of faith. And he says that if one were to speak to a mountain, that it should be cast into the sea. If he does not doubt in his heart but believes, he will have it. It will be done. Now this notion of a mountain be moved and cast into the sea is a proverbial expression. 
In other words, it refers to that which is difficult or impossible. It was well known in the first century. It is also known in our days today. We talk about mountains, you know, removing mountains. We're talking about that which is difficult or impossible. And here what the Lord is saying is that by faith, faith in him, God is even willing to alter the very structure of this creation. If one were to speak to a mountain and say, be moved and cast into the sea, he will have it if he does not doubt but believes in his heart. We see the possibilities of faith even to alter the very structure of creation. Jesus then goes on and he makes a telling point in which he talks about having mountain-moving faith and links this to this matter of prayer. So in verse 24, he says, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe you have received them and you will have them. And the idea here is that the faith that is exercised in God and to which he responds by moving mountains is a faith that is exercised chiefly, primarily, in prayer. It is in prayer that we lay hold of God and trust him to do what is impossible for us. Now, some of you listen to this, and I am sure that you have had many instances in your life where you have gone to God when you were in need and you have prayed and asked God to do something about your particular situation. And the reality is nothing changed. And so there are those who will look at a text like this and they will find it to be problematic. Is Jesus overselling? Is he promising more than can be delivered? I believe that when you read verses like this, both in chapter 9, 23, and 24, when you read verses like this here in chapter 11, that always we must bear in mind that even though God responds to faith, God acts according to his will. And so there is always in prayer, is always, there is always in trusting in God, bearing in the back of our minds that God works according to his will. All things are possible for God, but not all things are permissible. In other words, it is not everything that we ask of God that he will do because it's not everything that we ask that is in accordance to his will. And that is why, therefore, we ought to take this statement in conjunction to what is said in 1 John 5 verse 14. Now, this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, God will work and God will move mountains, but it also must be in the will of God. What we must not do here, however, is to miss the bold point that our Lord makes. That God responds with limitless power to the faith of his people. That faith brings the impossible and makes it possible. We see the prerequisite of faith. We see the possibility of faith to move mountains, to have the demon possessed, cleansed and restored to his sound mind and to a healthy body. The possibilities of faith. But I want to hastily speak about another area of faith that is the preciousness of faith 
that Marx draws upon. If he points us to the prerequisite of faith and the possibilities of faith, he points us to the preciousness of faith. And he does so in a couple of ways. First of all, he shows us the preciousness of faith in our Lord's warning against putting an obstacle in the, in the face of or in the path of his children and causing them to stumble. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 9 and verse 42, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone that is a vast, a huge stone, was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The disciples were discussing the question as to who was greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes a little child and puts them amongst them and he says, unless you, if you receive one of these little ones, then you receive me. And here again, our Lord is using the child as an active parable. He's actually saying to them that if you are to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be last. You must humble yourself as a child would. And then in verse 42, he picks up this image of the child and warns against doing anything that will cause one of his little ones who believe in him to stumble. And what our Lord is saying is that we must do nothing, whether by word or deed, that will cause those little children who believe in God to turn aside from him. But we need to recognize that more is implied here. Because when our Lord Jesus talks about the little children, he is not merely referring to children, physical children alone. He's referring to his children, to all believers. They are the little people, the ones with little influence and power in society. And so the, the disciples are to do nothing that will cause one of his children to turn aside from their faith in him. If they, he says it would be preferable if they were drowned by a massive stone in the sea than to turn one of his children aside. Because at least they would only be dead, but if they were to turn one of them aside, they would face God's punitive wrath, his decisive judgment. And so the point here is that Jesus considers faith, whether it is expressed by a little child or by an adult who believes in him, to be precious. That is, in our teachings, in our actions, in all that we do, we must endeavor to bolster and to nurture the faith of others rather than to turn them aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the preciousness of faith, because it is given of God, it is precious. But Mark hints at the preciousness of faith, not only in the warning against turning one who believes in Christ away from him, he shows the preciousness of faith by noting the scarcity of faith and the prevalence of unbelief. Jesus goes, for instance, to Nazareth where he grew up. He goes to the, to, to the synagogue and he reads there in the synagogue. And the people in Nazareth, we are told in chapter 6 of Mark and verses 2 and 3, they acknowledge that Jesus Christ has done mighty works. But then they did something else. Then they looked at him and they said, well, is not this the carpenter? Do we not know his mother? Are not his brothers here? Jose and Judas and Simon, are not they all amongst us and his sisters? And the Bible says that they were offended because of him. They did not believe. Even in his own hometown, and that is why our Lord could say, a prophet is without honor even in his own country. They did not believe in him. 
You see the preciousness of faith because of the scarcity of faith and the prevalence of unbelief. In chapter 8 of Mark, the, lead, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want Jesus to show them a sign, but he says no sign will be given to this generation. In chapter 9, where we read and discussed this matter of him healing the demon-possessed boy, Jesus could call the generation. He says, you are an unbelieving generation. What, what I'm trying to say to you, that, that the order of the day in the first century, those who responded to Jesus Christ, were few. The bulk of them were called a generation of unbelieving people. Even the disciples at times were guilty of unbelief. You see unbelief even at the foot of the cross. Because there the chief priests and the scribes, they challenged Jesus as he hung on the cross. Let the Christ, they said, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Clearly, all that Jesus did for those three years that he crisscrossed Judah, and Jerusalem, and Galilee, and Capernaum, for those three years, with all the miracles, with all the preaching, they still wanted a sign from him on the cross. They didn't believe. But genuine faith, genuine faith receives and hangs onto the very word of Christ. It doesn't seek more proof. It believes. And so for Mark, we see the prerequisite of faith. We see the possibility of faith. All things are possible to him who believes. And we see the preciousness of faith. Because so few have it. My dear friends, I, I must draw this to a conclusion this morning. The Bible requires faith as the legitimate response to Jesus Christ. You may believe in other people. You may even believe in government. You may even have faith in your own potentials and abilities. But what the Bible requires is that you will trust in Jesus Christ. That you will believe in him who is the son of God. That you will believe in him who is the savior of the world. And that you will believe in him who gave himself on the cross and died for our sins. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There is none who is able to save. And the Bible demands that we believe. Listen, and this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Any man or any woman who will become a Christian, who will become a part of the kingdom of God, must trust God's gift to us, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. You must cast yourself. You must look simply and directly to Jesus alone who saves. You must abandon your sin and you must cleave to him. You must accept his death on the cross as full and final payment for all of your sins. And if you do so, you will be saved to the utmost. You will be saved. You will be so saved that you can never again be lost. Save to the utmost. Save forever. This faith that you are to exhibit in Christ must be a persistent faith. Because Mark continually tells the disciples, at least Jesus tells the disciples, that they must follow him through rejection. 
through humiliation, through great danger, and even, even in death. This must be a persistent faith. Because when you come to chapter 13, verses 21 to 23, Jesus tells us that the last days will become difficult for faith. He says, but if anyone says to you, look here, here is the Christ, or look, he's there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, I have told you all these things before. You see, the faith, that saving faith, must be a persevering faith. It must persevere to the end. It is those who endure to the end who will be saved. Jesus says in the last day, there are going to be false messiahs, people who purport to have miraculous powers. So much so that people are going to believe you are to stick to Jesus Christ. You are to look to him and to no one else for salvation. He demands faith. Will you believe today? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in him for salvation? If you do not, you must do so now. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What a tremendous promise. But I must, I must clarify that though faith is vastly beneficial for man, it is not necessary for God to work. Very interestingly in Mark chapter 6, because the people in Nazareth did not believe in him, we are told there in Mark 6 that Jesus could do no great works amongst them. Now you may read that and say, well, Jesus could do no great works because they did not believe in him. But we need to know, we need to know that faith cannot force the hand of God to do what he does not wish to do. Neither can unbelief shackle God or prevent God from doing what he wishes to do. Jesus could not do any great work in Nazareth. Not because faith hampered him. Not because he lost power to do so because they did not trust in him. But because he would not do so. He could not do any great work because he resolved not to do so. He was not going to give them miracles on demand so that they may persist in their unbelief. By withholding his mighty powers there, he acted in judgment upon their unbelief. Notice that it says that Jesus healed in verse 5, in, in Mark 6 verse 5, Jesus did perform miracles. He didn't perform many miracles. He didn't do mighty miracles, but he healed a few sick people. Chapter 6, verse 5. So their unbelief did not stop him from working altogether. He chose, however, not to exercise his power because of their lack of unbelief. Because the ultimate point is that God responds to faith. You see, the Lord is able to work where there is no faith. We see that in in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, the disciples were in the boat. Jesus calms the sea. He says, where is your faith? They didn't have much faith. Christ is able to work with no faith. He's able to work with little faith. He could say to the man, the man says to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He didn't have much faith. He confessed it. But Jesus still went ahead and healed. You see, it is not great faith or small faith. But it is real faith that Christ looks for. 
that you and I will trust in him, that we will depend upon him and his almighty power. My dear friends, the message of Mark regarding faith is simply this. Have faith in God. It is the habitual response to God. You must realize that faith has great possibilities. It brings the impossible near and make it possible. Have faith in God. If you are to have faith in God, you need to know about the powerfulness of God. You need to know that there is nothing difficult for God. All things are possible to him who believes. Have faith in God who is all-powerful. The God who has no constraints, who has no limits and boundaries on his greatness. Have faith in his powerfulness. But you must have faith in his goodness. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, The life I live, I live by faith. But he goes on to say, In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You cannot believe in God unless you know he's all-powerful. But you cannot believe in him unless you know he's all-good. And the reason Paul could believe in Jesus, it is because he loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew that because Christ died for him, there is nothing that he needed that Christ would not give him. Have faith in God. So that when you cannot see God's hand at work, believe in the heart of God. Believe in the goodness of God. Have faith in God. Have faith that God will help you. It is the way that believers in the past lived. Job was brought very low. At one point he says, Lord, will you not loosen your hands and cut me off? He wanted to die. But Job never gave up faith in God. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his anguish, he could say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the latter day he will stand upon the earth. And in my flesh I shall see him with my eyes and not another. He persevered in faith and he overcame. How did David overcome Goliath? He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of Israel. He was trusting in God. And the victories that God's people have endured, have received, they have done by enduring in faith. The Bible reminds us, what is the victory that overcomes the world? It is our faith. And you, you have mountains. You have those proverbial mountains. You have those impassable rivers. You have those things that you by yourself will never be able to manage. But you are not on your own. You are not without resources. You need to know the possibilities of faith. You need to pray believing that the good and the powerful God is able to help you have faith in God. Have faith in God regarding your children. Have faith in God regarding your church and your society. 
Have faith in God regarding your spiritual life. Have faith in God. You see, God delights to work when human power has come to an end. It is when we truly become weak. It is when we renounce our strength that God's strength kicks in. So long as you are powerful and strong, you will not know God's strength. But when you renounce yours, God takes you up and gives you even that which is impossible. Have faith in God. I do not know what mountains and what trials and difficulties are before you. I do not know what God will do with them in your life, but this one thing I know, that faith is the victory. That if you are to know any victory in any area of life, have faith in God.